0: Amen. Amen. So on Tuesday, I walked you guys through the idea of seven resets. Historically, this was a horizontal journey from Genesis to the New Testament, from Genesis to the New Testament. I am not going over it again because I'm a 30 minutes late and I want to kind of press into what um, what I feel is kind of an optic or a point of focus or a salient thought that I want to capture with you. And this is about the trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation. And uh, even while I'm saying it, I'm a little bit hesitant because way too many people have a wrong view on how to even benefit from the apocalypse. I'm going to know that by the way we go into Q&A today, but that's okay. Be ready to, to render the questions when they come. I can talk about eschatology across all the systems. I can talk about it historically. I can talk about it exegetically and we can do that. So I want you to benefit from it. I will say this, whenever the church of Jesus Christ is dealing with the apocalypse, whenever we're reading the apocalypse or studying the apocalypse, we are actually being blessed. That's the way the apocalypse opens up. Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Listen to them carefully and then we'll continue to go in. So, you are going to be blessed tonight because we are dealing with the apocalypse. Now, don't 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 uh put too much in the idea of that blessing yip. Just understand if God says it's a blessing, it's a blessing. It may not show up as a blessing today, it might show up next week. But I am going to ask you to give as much attention to our exercise as we can. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, that's what that term is. Revelation is apocalypse. The apocalypses, the apocalypses of Yesu Christo, which God, Theos, gave unto him. So this book called The Revelation, the. This this magnanimous final copy of, of, of the rule of God for people, for God's people was a gift from the father to the son. You, you need to know that. And here's what it says to show unto his servants things which must shortly what come to pass. So I need you to now be exegetical. What listeners? I don't want you passive. I want you active. That text says that the father gave the son something for which the son now is wanting to show his servant. So the apocalypse is not some hidden code that was not to be shared, some kind of secret uh, message that is so opaque and so dark and so uh, uninterpretable like tongues without interpretation. That's not the case here the apocalypse was meant to be known and be read and understood by his what's the word there his servants now i want you to capture that word servant okay because when we go into the Q&A, I'm going to argue for some of the presumptions going on in the West around for whom is the book of the apocalypse written. What is it about in terms of its timelines? And it's important for you to know that God is coding all the way through the apocalypse. Those to whom he's writing. The first word that comes up for us is servant. OK, the doulas that's us. Uh in, uh in this context is John, but it will be us. That word servant will run all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Verse two, <clears throat> verse two, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things he saw. So John is the third party recipient of a subject object relationship between the father and the son. Did you all get that? Those of you who know PJ's language, you know my language, right? Subject, object, the father gave to the son, subject, object, the apocalypse. And the apocalypse is now being given to John. He's the third party beneficiary of the apocalypse. Did that come home? Very important to get. So John is going to be the mediator of this revelation, of this apocalypses. John is the one. And what John is saying here as a servant of Christ, he's doing two things. He's hearing and he's seeing. And those terms are going to be interchangeable. He's going to hear and see, see and hear, hear and see, see and hear, because John is the final prophet of God's word to humanity. It's important for you to get. Verse three, verse three. Blessed is the one that reads and those that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein for the time won't happen for 2000 years. All right. So if you if you see that, just capture that, snatch that and put that in a category because you're going to have to wrestle with it if you're under the assumption that the apocalypse is closed until 2021. Because the text literally is telling us that the time is at hand. It's so at hand, is at the same kind of hand that when Jesus was with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas Iscariot walked up and right before he walked up, Jesus says, those who are betraying me are at hand. That's how close that is. It's a timeline reference as to the efficacy and manifestation and impact of the apocalypse. That has inferences, I'm sure you know. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. John to the what? Seven churches which are in Asia Minor. Now we have a fourth auditory category engaged in this gift that's been passed down. Passed from the father to the son to John to what? The seven churches. Important for you to know that. The apocalypse is to the seven churches because the seven churches are going to spread it throughout the world. Because the seven churches are also prophetic witnesses right along with John. That makes sense, right? That makes sense. Just sharing with you guys, you're going to hear me argue for that if the question comes up. To whom is the apocalypse given? Not to the Jews, to the church. It's going to be a very necessary argument to make for us to understand the relevance. But you can bring up the questions. We can deal with it when we get there. So I'm raising that because now what I want to talk to you about are, are things we know about the nature of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is filled with numbers that are symbolic in nature. And the big number is the number what? The number seven. Now, you and I, you know, while we were going through COVID, we took a great deal of time to go through the book of the apocalypse. And I dealt with the numerological implications of it. But the number seven is a critical number. Seven churches, seven horns, seven eyes. Right. Seven heads, all kinds of sevens running through the book of the Revelation, because the number seven is the number of perfection for God. Perfection, fullness, completion. Right. And so the number seven is going to play a significant role because there are three sets of sevens under three nomenclatures. Seals. What's the next one? Trumpets. And then bowl are what we might call vile judgments. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments and bowl judgments will encompass the totality of your Bible unto Revelation chapter 21. And by order of events, seals go first, trumpets go second, and bowls go third. Does that follow? Also, by order of structure, if you and I had our old PowerPoint, you'd see that the seal judgments overlap with the trumpet judgments at the seventh seal corresponding with the first trumpet. Did that make some sense? I'm going to show you in a minute. And when we get to the sixth trumpet, as it enters, its seventh trumpet will correspond with the first what? Bold judgment. Can you guys see that? Does that make sense? All right, good. So if you, if you will, here's what you can know when I explain the seal judgments. The seal judgments are going to push. They are the catalyst for the trumpet judgments. And the trumpet judgments will be a catalyst for the bold judgments. All three of them are forcing into reality history from God's vantage point. Did that make some sense? All right. Very good. Very good. Again, I didn't have time to have our uh, audio team bring out the um, PowerPoints on that. I'm just talking to you off the top of my head. I want to address the seventh trumpet, but we're going to have to walk up to it. And the reason why is, is that. I believe the seventh trumpet is where we are in present history. And I'm not saying that to make any kind of, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pastor Jesse said we're in the seventh trumpet. Um, I'm saying it because what I want to do is look at what the seventh trumpet constitutes by way of its language, by way of its visions, by way of its terminology, and see if you and I can benefit from it as a framework for continually being able to see the world through God's eyes. I'm going to say it one more time, just in case your body's here, but your mind is not, because that can really be the case. Like a lot of y'all are tired. You haven't taken a nap, so you're going to be gone in about 20 minutes. And I tell you, you always lose out. You can just go sit in your car, sleep for 10 minutes, and then you can do the study. That's a better way to honor God than to be hustling all day and then run up in here and you're tired. Because God's not going to just automatically wake you up, especially when you went over there to the food bar over there and and ate up all that food. Um, When we talk about the trumpet judgments, I'm going to start with the seal judgments. The seal judgments are given to us in Revelation chapter six, Revelation chapter six, verse one. I'm just going to look at a few of the seal judgments. I'm going to talk about them and talk about how they relate. The seal judgments are spoken about in Revelation chapter six. And I saw when the lamb, who's the lamb? Jesus Christ opened one of the seals. Now there are seven seals and John sees when Jesus opens the first of the seven seals. One meaning the first of the seven seals. Does that make some sense? Right. The seven seals are talked about in Revelation chapter four, verse four and five, where Jesus approaches the father. The father gives him the book that holds the seven seals, and Jesus was able to open the seven seals, and now we're looking at the contents of the seven seals. For those of you who want to take notes, the seven seals are the title deed to life as we know it and eternity under the rule of Jesus Christ. The seven seals are the title deed to life as we know it and eternity under the rule of Jesus Christ. It would be like this because we're dealing with a theomenarchial paradigm, a king is ruling, is he not? He's, he's frequently in the apocalypse observed as him who sits on the throne, whom no one can see, but we know him to be God, the what? Father. And then Jesus approaches the throne as God, the what? Son. And as a vicar, the son is running God's world. We would agree with that. So what the father does is give the son the title deed of authority over everything so he can run the world. On the ground at a a horizontal level, you and I know that to be Matthew 28, 18 and 19. All authority and all power has been given unto me over everything. Therefore, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Y'all got that, right? We say Jesus is what? Lord. So that's the language. So as the seals are opening it's an indication that Jesus is exercising authority over the world. Akilah's up there. You might be able to find those seal images that we have before. And one of the seal images for people to have a proper view is not seven individuated seals. There it is. Those are what the seal judgments would look like. And do you see each go back? Go back for a second. You see each, each one of those uh, clay uh, seals, each one of those clay seals will open up one of those um, scrolls. Once that first one is open, the second one, that seal has to be broken. Then the second scroll is open. Then the third one, then the fourth one. They are a whole continuity, but they have to be broken at the end of each scroll proclamation. Did that come home? Very important. I wanted you to see that visual. Um, so, So going back to Revelation chapter six, verse one, I want to just look at the first four briefly. I shouldn't even do that. But but I kind of want to drill it into you. The first four um, seal judgments are important because they are what are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That language has been taken and desecularized and made to be applied to everything under the sun. Right. The four horsemen of the apocalypse is the symbolic language I use in the ROE class when a brother is in trouble with his wife. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse has to run up on him. You guys remember that language, right? Anyhow, when he opens the seal, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts says what? Says what? That means be interested in what God is about to do under this decree. Come and see is what the angel said who were at the tomb of Jesus at his resurrection come and see. Come and see is for everyone that's interested in what God is up to. And no one will come and see who is not interested. So the four living creatures are serving as a medium between John and Jesus, compelling John to come and what? And you and I too. So the next verse will tell us what John sees. And I saw, there it is, and beheld a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So now we're dealing with a horse that is uh, obtaining victories. Nikeon is the Greek term, Nike, from which we get triumph and victory and overcoming. Okay, your Bible is filled with symbols in the book of Revelation. The symbol of white never refers to the devil or the enemy. It only refers to Christ and his triumphant saints. This white horse is the gospel. It is going forth, conquering and conquering throughout the world as men and women are saved through the preaching of Jesus. I'll be glad to deal with your premillennial dispensational views when we get to Q&A on that and argue. But this is what John sees. He sees the first horse as a priority of God's purpose. Then he sees the second horse and these horses will run not sequentially, but simultaneously. Notice what it says. And I saw and behold a white uh, verse three, please want to get through this. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say the same thing. Come and see verse uh, four. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another. And there was given him a great ramphi a sword. Right. That's a red horse. So you got your white horse, you got your red horse. The white horse is the gospel of peace. The red horse is the message of war. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse four and four. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be conflicts between nations. How did he know? Because he's God. How else did he know? Because he's on the throne orchestrating historical events. So now we go to the next one, verse five. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. So we go from a white horse to a red horse to a what kind of horse? Now here, this horse has scales, a pair of balances in his hands. Is that what it says? So balances always have to do with economic stability or instability. Right. Economic stability or instability. This is the, the casting of the weights. A false balance is an abomination unto the Lord. A just balance is his delight. In business, God causes people to be fair and honest. But balances underscore God's prerogative to bless us with economic wherewithal so that we can live our life. But sometimes God allows trouble to come and the skills of of, uh, balance indicate that we are suffering shortages in the world. Look at the next verse. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. What is verse six underscoring? Massive inflation. Massive inflation. What does that mean? There shall be famines and pestilences. That's Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is the... Ground version of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Jesus explains <coughs> what the world would be like cyclically all the way to the end. Sometimes it will be peace, sometimes it will be war, sometimes it will be prosperity, sometimes it will be famine. One more horse, and then we're going on. Verse 7. Oh, I'll go back to verse 6 just in case you're studious. Don't hurt the oil, don't hurt the wine. Is that what he says? This teaches you that God is sovereign in what is impacted at the economic and agricultural level. Don't hurt the oil. Don't hurt the wine. You got to remember the book of the apocalypse is not only dealing with world events, but it's dealing with world events from a symbolic and redemptive level. Don't hurt the oil. Don't hurt the wine. Okay, the oil and the wine, the oil and the wine is going to come back up again. All right. We're going to see that. Verse uh, seven. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. There he goes. They're all saying what? Come and see. Right. If you want to know what God is up to, read his word. But you're going to actually have to have God help you. You and I don't see truth naturally. You think you do, you don't. He has to help us. Verse eight. This is the last one. And I looked and beheld a pale horse. And his name (coughs) that sat on him was what? And hell followed him and power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. So we got four categories of decrees of how the world will function. There will be a proclamation from the New Testament on to where we are now, where the gospel goes into the world. It has been. It is yet going into the world. Men and women are being saved. Christians all over the planet. But simultaneously to the gospel going forth, there are wars and rumors of wars. There have always been wars since the Roman Empire up to where we are at present. We are engaging in mega wars right now, the numbers of which have never been on the face of the earth. And the danger at the present time with you and I are remarkably important, but no one's talking about it. We will talk about it when things shake up a little bit more. That's kind of why what I do as a pastor here who also has a prophetic calling. I let you know what we're bumping up against publicly so that when things begin to happen, you don't collapse like a lot of church folk do because they've been living in a bubble. Right. So so this is what we want to work through. Here is talking about death and that follows. If you have war, you're going to have famine. If you have famine, you're going to have what? These are sequential, these are cyclical, and in the midst of a world fighting all the time, disturbing economic systems, ecological economic systems, death is just the attrition everywhere on the planet. We should never become maladjusted to it. We should hate it. We should hate the fact that our world is constantly fighting and killing itself because that is radically anti-Christian. Did that make some sense? And the reason I put that little caveat out there is because, unfortunately for me, I'm dealing with a society of Christians that are more politically oriented than we are biblically oriented. And what I mean by that is, when you become political, you don't mind your enemy dying. And that's wrong. I'll leave that there for now. Now, this is the seal judgments, and they're going to push the what judgments? Right. So from uh, chapter seven does this really weird thing It's kind of an inner testament period from chapter seven to chapter eight. It gives this visual of the seals working in terms of sealing one hundred and forty four of 11 tribes of the nation of Israel, and then it goes into the trumpet judgments. So we're going to leave chapter seven alone because I want to get into the trumpet judgments because that's where I want us to be talking about what trumpet judgments are and what they look like. So if I say that the seals are decrees, they are God's sovereign decree. It's his mandate To rule the world and how seals are what kings, the authority of kings. They are the authority of kings to decree and uh, and God's sovereign decree is being executed. Now, this is the title deed to the universe. It's being unfurled as you and I speak. Well, the trumpets are always a warning that something is or is about to happen. A trumpet is a warning. All through your Bible, you get this thing called the trumpets. This is going to be Amos chapter 3, verse 8. Can you pull that up? Amos 3, 8. This is going to be a a sort of definition given to us about the trumpets I want to talk about. The lion hath roared. Who will not fear? The Lord hath spoken. Who can but what? Well, go back to verse 7. It may be verse 8. Um. I'm, I'm just guessing I'm in that ballpark. I don't want to have to find it. But if you go there uh, briefly, maybe verse six through eight, maybe even nine. What verse is it? OK, verse six. There it is. Look at verse six in our text. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be what? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not what? Right. So Israel, when they came out of Egypt, as God had them preparing to be his army to go into Palestine, going to the land of Canaan, you guys know that that's where we are in our study. Israel was God's army as the church is God's army as well. God told Moses to make two trumpets of silver so the Israelites could be instructed as to what to do when God said, arise, move, and go. You guys remember that? This would be in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 10. Paul said it also in 1 Corinthians 14. How shall the people know if the trumpet doesn't give a certain sound what to do? Right. And so even in the New Testament, we're being taught how to hear God's word as a trumpet. More than that, the opening of the apocalypse in chapter 1, John said in chapter one, around verse 10, pull that up. I'm going to speculate again. The voice that he heard was a voice like unto a trumpet. Jesus was talking to him. This is, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 110. This This is the symbolism that is inherent. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great what? As of a... So the trumpet now is a symbolism running from Revelation chapter one all the way up to Revelation 15, okay? And trumpets are warning signs. So not warning sounds, warning signs. So when you hear the idea of a trumpet, your job is not to listen for a sound, but to look for a sight. When you hear the language, the trumpet look for an event that corresponds with God's warning and it will be evident by evil being present. Did that come home? When the trumpet is being blown, people in the city are being warned that an enemy is approaching. That's why Ezekiel was said, I am sitting you on the wall like a watchman. If you don't blow the trumpet, their blood is on your hand. So the book of the apocalypse is a trumpet all the way through. Does that make sense? All right, so good. Now I want to kind of work with this for a little while before we get into the Q&A. And I want us to go to Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to see if I can walk through this. There's a lot of language. Then I'm going to get to Revelation chapter 11, which is where I want us to settle into the seventh trumpet. If you can take notes, be ready for some Q&A. Um, we'll see if we can help you a little bit. Let me see. How can I put this? This will make sense. If you position yourself as if you are in a bird's eye view, I talked to you about that on Tuesday. Don't ever forget every Christian has the right to view the world from God's eyes. And when you don't, you make a huge mistake. But the only way you're going to see the world through God's eyes is to read his word with your heart, In a place where Christ is, because Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And what Christ sees is the world from a bird's eye view. But I told you on Tuesday, you and I are at the right hand of Christ. So if Christ is at the right hand of the Father and we're at the right hand of Christ, should we not be able to see the world from a bird's eye view? That's what the apocalypse is about. Now, most people are operating out of a horizontal level. I told you about the horizontal dilemma. Haven't I told you about that? That's the children of Israel in the wilderness. I swear they never saw anything up in the skies ever. By the way, they're complaining, right? The heavens didn't open up, no revelation, no glory. Now it happened, but they didn't see it. Why? Because they are trapped by a horizontal dilemma. It is a major limitation on your capacity to see the world from a bird's eye what? That's right. And the believer has that it's called. It's called come and see. So we're getting ready to watch heaven acting from heaven down on the earth. And there are a lot of artifacts and terms that are coming out that I'm not going to stop and slow down and unpack because we'd be here till 10 o'clock. But I want you to I want to see if you can pick up on some. I want you to take notes. I want you to take notes as if. God is preparing you for something. And if you don't get it, you're going to miss it when it happens. Now I don't even know what that is for you. But what I want you to do is read with your ears wide open and not force yourself to see something. But just listen. And if something comes up, write it down so we can talk about it. I'm going to walk this through a lot here. And when he had opened the seventh seal, ah. What do you mean, pastor? Well, the seventh seal is the first what? All right, he's getting ready to prove that. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. So think about this. This here is a conflation of categories because we're dealing with apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language are metaphors, analogies, similes, topological patterns, imagery that defies our normal three-dimensional sort of sequential pattern of conceptualization. That means things are conflated in ways that don't make normal natural sense. Like heaven is a boundless place when it comes to time. We're conflating categories. See, now I shouldn't stop and teach, but I'm trying to help you understand a lot of people don't really benefit from the apocalypse because they don't slow down to read these things. God is telling you, I'm going to give you a temporal metaphor in a eternal context. That eternal context is heaven. He's going to give you a time measure, a half an hour. For us, that's a half an hour, right? 30, 60 second intervals really don't know what that means in heaven. All right, let's keep going. Verse two. I want to walk this through. I'm going to do a lot of reading now. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God and to them were given what? Uh Uh-huh. Seven trumpets. Seven trumpets are featured in the seventh seal. Verse three. Let me keep going. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all of the saints upon the golden altar that was before the throne. Wow. So I know I'm in heaven. And I know they're trumpets and I know they're angels, but I've just been introduced to something else. A whole temple scenario. Did y'all get that? You better hold on to it because you have no other standing in this heavenly vision apart from the temple. All right, I'm going on. Verse four. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Verse five. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, cast it to the earth, cast it to the earth. So from heaven, something came down. What came down? Fire from the altar. Did it come down? So we got a heavenly bird's eye view and we see something happening on the earth from heaven. We know this language, right? Because the apocalypse is nothing but a compilation of everything the Old Testament said. We know this is Ezekiel chapter 9, do we not? We know this is Ezekiel chapter 10. We know this. We know that the temple, therefore, is a metaphor of God's sovereign rule and God's sovereign place acting over against the whole human race. Also, whenever the temple is executing something on the earth, it's responding to how the earth is behaving. All right, let me keep going. I told you I wasn't going to interpret. And there was voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake. Verse six. And the seven angels, which had seven trumpets, prepared themselves to whatever they did, whatever they did. Remember, I told you, you're not hearing a sound, you're going to see an event. Here it is. Here it is. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail, fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. That was a trumpet. Do you see it? That was a trumpet. Heaven opened up and a trumpet yielded forth a judgment. That's wild. But we've seen this before because there was a battle between heaven and earth right before a bunch of people that were chosen by God to be brought out of bondage from a word that we need to now capture. What's the word? Egypt. You need to capture that. Because now heaven in the apocalypse is acting as if we're back in the days when God's people were in bondage. Okay, it's important for you to know that this is a plague of the 10 plagues. Some call this the seventh plague. I would argue that that's true. Let's keep going. Verse eight. And the second angel sounded as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and the third part of the sea became what? Right. This is amazing. Now, again, you may or may not know this is language, apocalyptic language of the ending of kingdoms. Mountains represent kingdoms. And you don't know it, but Jeremiah spoke about this. He said Babylon would be taken up and cast as a burning mountain into the sea. Okay. so I'm I'm giving you the apocalyptic language in short interpretive mode so that you can keep up with me. All of the prophets in the past were speaking like this when they were speaking for God against nations that were seeking to harm God's people. By the way, the book of the apocalypse largely is a depiction of heaven ruling over the kingdoms of men in behalf of God's people. So when you see all of this evil happening, it's God punishing men for abusing his people who were simply warning men that we need to behave right when it comes to our God, because God blesses, but God also what? Curses. Y'all keeping up? Also, I want you to keep in mind, I'm, a, I'm just front loading you with stuff. I want you to keep in mind the tactile uh, reality of what's happening. I want you to keep in mind what's taking place. Because these are actually ecological judgments, are they not? Very, very germane to where we are in our day. Would you agree? Very germane. But they have been throughout all history. All right, let's keep going. Verse nine. In the third part of the creatures that were in the sea and had life, they died. And the third part of the ships were what? Right. So whatever came down from heaven completely knocked out all of the commerce on the sea. It's only God's mercy that we have a 24-hour day without a major disruption on an ecological level. Next verse. And the third angel sounded, that's the third trumpet, and there fell a great star from heaven burning, as it were, a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of the waters, verse 11. And the name of the star was called what? Good, that's another key term. Because now we have not only things coming out of the temple in heaven, but we have the collapsing of the cosmos onto the earth. The collapsing of the cosmos onto the earth. Is that the imagery? A star is falling. A star is falling. It's getting really, get worse than that. A star is falling. And the name of the star is called what? Had you ever heard that term before? The prophet spoke about it. Wormwood is the metaphor for that which is bitter, that which is angry, that which is toxic, that which is dying. This is what God said he would do to Israel when it rebelled against Israel. He would bring them into anger and bitterness and toxicity because of their rebellion and disobedience before God. If you, do it, you did a Google search under Wormwood, you'd find that it really indicates God bringing them into a state of grief because of their rebellion. Grief, painful grief. Because they were made bitter. And many men died of the waters because they were made what? Bitter. Remember the first major obstacle for Israel coming out of the wilderness was bitter waters. That could only be resolved by one methodology. A tree. And that tree pointed to who? Right. Right. So our world is bitter today. And the waters represent the peoples of the world. And society is bitter today. And the remedy for society today is the remedy that Israel had learned when they were in the wilderness. And that remedy is someone who could take on their bitterness in the person of Christ. You agree with that. Now watch this. Verse 13 because I want to keep walking. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third part of the sun was smitten, a third part of the moon, and a third part of the star's so as that the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Whoa, once again, an Egyptian judgment. Because remember, it was dark in Egypt. In other words, the sun was darkened and the moon was darkened and the sky was darkened. Here, I want to give you what this is. This here is a warfare scenario. We talked about this when we worked through this before. In a war, sometimes daylight is not seen for days because of the smoke from the battle engaged. Our perspective of the sun and its capacity to be seen it's only if there's nothing mediating, mitigating a view. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? For us, the sun can be dark, it could be red, it could be this, it could be that. And all we're dealing with is a filter that has modified its natural vision, its natural view. That makes sense, right? In war, men and women will swear that they never saw daylight for days because of the bombs dropping and the fire and conflagration, conflagration all around. It's important for you to know we're dealing with a warfare here. We already saw the four horsemen. So what you're getting in the trumpet judgments are manifestations of that red horse. Keep going, verse, verse 13. It's getting, getting ready to get weirder than this and we're not even at the seventh trumpet yet. And I beheld and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Whoa, woe, woe, three woes. Now where do the woes come from? The major prophets. Isaiah brought woes. Jeremiah brought woes. The lamentation is full of woes. The prophet brought woes. Proverbs speaks of woes. God spoke of woes in the book of Deuteronomy. Woe is when men and women persist in rebelling against God and a judgment comes that brings nothing but total misery. All right, so now notice what it says. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the what? To the inhabitants of the what? Earth. To the inhabitants of the world, of the what? Earth. Good. I want you to get that, because in the book of Revelation, I taught you this before. There are two citizenries: a heavenly citizenry and an earthly citizenry. Did I teach you that? Those that dwell in heaven and those that dwell on the earth. So the people that dwell on the earth are in danger of these kind of consequences. Those who dwell in heaven are secured from them. Where do you dwell? Okay, if you dwell there, then you should not be harmed by these things. You see how quickly you're jumping on that? You better work that through, right? Because when people say they are believers in Christ, they say they are, but they can be moved by every temporal, earthly, carnal thing, even propaganda. I'm not quite sure. Y'all keeping up with me? If God has positioned you in Christ and has made a cupboard for you so that the soul and the mind is secure, preserved, watched over. That's what the temple is. It's a sanctuary. The temple is a sanctuary. When you're in the sanctuary, you're in God's citadel. That should mean that even though there are bombs dropping all around you, there should be a level of stability and tranquility on your part because you should feel like God is protecting you. Great peace have all they whose mind is stayed on thee. So when men and women are not operating out of fellowship with God so that they don't sense God as a fortress and a high tower and a strong tower, then they're easily moved by all of the instability and propaganda of our secular world. Let me keep going. Law can be said here. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. So how many angels have we dealt with? One, two, three, four. How many do we have left? Good. You guys can give yourself a PhD. So we got three left and these three are actually going to intensify. They're going to be tough. Three left. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, because I think we're at the end of the chapter. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw another star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, you see what we're doing? We're conflating metaphors, because we have a star falling, but then we have an anthropo- anthropological uh, terminology used for him, and unto him was given. A star is not a person, but in the apocalypse it is, Right? So this star is a fallen star who is now given authority to open a pit. Now, here it is. Watch how it goes. And I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the what kind of pit? That terminology will be used a couple more times in the book of the Apocalypse, and it will take us all the way to the end of time as we know it. When the bottomless pit is open, what we're talking about is the shaft to hell the shaft of hell, meaning hell is going to be unleashed by this star that is fallen. Verse two, and he opened the bottomless pit and there arose a smoke out of the pit and the smoke as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke, hence darkness of the sun and the air and the sun and the air are darkened by reason of the smoke. The smoke now impedes pure oxygen, And the smoke now impedes the proper necessary sunlight for our life. You have to understand now what has been targeted is the health of humanity. Did y'all catch that? If the sun is blocked, we don't have its rays, its healthy rays that interact with the earth at all kinds of ecological levels. And the quality of our life is completely impeded. You agree with that. If we do not have clean air, we're going to choke out and die. Sounds like the 21st century, doesn't it? Because your Bible is teaching you something about how rebellious man wreaks the havoc of disobedience, and is met with the judgment of God. Notice, and God will explain why this is happening. I just want you to know, he's going to explain to you why. Verse three, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the air. Oh, here we go. We got smoke, we got sun dark, and now we got locusts jumping out. Here we go again. Smoke and, 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 and the darkening of the sun, all of that is Again, Egyptian metaphor of the judgment upon Egypt because Egypt was the great paradigm of God's enemy at that time. And you remember what they had to deal with? Locusts. Locusts is one of God's major judgments in the Middle East, the far east in Africa. Whenever God wants to destroy the crops, that's where the famine comes in at. The locusts are going to eat up everything, right? Aha! Uh-huh, be careful, though. Watch this. Watch this. These are some wild locusts. They're coming out of the pit of hell. In other words, they're not natural locusts. They're demonic locusts. Here we go. Here we go. Verse four. Oh, I'm sorry. Stay back at verse three. I need to do a couple things because I'm going to teach you how Jesus was already explaining to you and I how to deal with locusts and scorpions. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Verse four. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. That's crazy. They're not, they're not vegetarians, they're not herbivores. Now locusts are designed to eat the herbs, but these only want humans. Now the reason they're locusts is because their job is to get at multitudes, millions. And now we're in the billions. These locusts are going after billions of people. Are you guys keeping up with me? Now I want you to hear the language. I have not even begun to penetrate into a contextual interpretation of this. I only want you to get used to the language because I want you to have a bird's eye view when you start to read the newspaper. Otherwise, you are horizontally trapped by lies that will actually filter what you should be seeing. Am I making some sense? All right, here we go. Um, he, he says, neither, the, neither uh, any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their forehead. Uh-huh. This is a group of men who are protected. They're protected. Mark that down. That's another code. In the midst of the trumpet judgments, there are a group of people that are protected. Because that group of people are decreed. They are what? Sealed. See it? They're Sealed. Now, these wild demonic locusts coming up out of the pit, they're flying around. Who knows how fast? We're in AI now. Who knows how fast? But when they run up against somebody that has a seal on up, can't mess with them. Got to go find somebody without a seal. Lord, seal me. Y'all keeping up with me? Because we can press into it. I'll give you Q&A. We can unwrap it in the Q&A. You know we can go there. It was commanded that they shouldn't do that, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. That's amazing. We call that the doctrine of election. There's some sealed and some not sealed. I love Paul because Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He's going to be my argument for why I hold a particular eschatological paradigm. Paul taught me how to understand the eschaton. Like if you've been there, you're a pretty good witness, right? And was Paul there? I was caught up to the third heavens. I saw things I couldn't utter, but he was there. So he helps me understand who are the sealed. Paul taught me three times who are the sealed. Then I'm taught again in Ezekiel chapter nine, who the sealed are. The sealed are everyone that cries and sighs for the abominations that are done. Did that make some sense? Right, God looks at the attitude and disposition of the heart. Because if we think like God does and we care like God does, we hate what we see going on. And God seals such. You're special. If you feel what God feels, think what God thinks. I'm thinking, I'm speaking anthropomorphically. And you represent God at that level. This is what we're learning about Moses. He stepped out of line. We're going to pick back up with him on Sunday. He messed up, didn't he? But he's going to get right back in line. Because God wants us to be happy when he's happy. And God wants us to be disappointed when he's disappointed. Ye who love the Lord hate evil. Let's keep going. Notice what it says. And to them, it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be what? Man, what kind of locusts are these? They get to run up on people that are unsealed and and, and torment them. Do you know what that means? The people that are unsealed are given to torments that do not kill them. So we see an exponential increase in tormented people today. And it's as the torment of scorpions when it strikes a man. Now, a scorpion has a range of impactful toxin. Did that make some sense? Like spiders do. Did that make some sense? Like other certain toxic bugs do. Did that make some sense? Like snakes do. Did that make some sense? Like vaccines do. Did that make some sense? I'm giving you keys. I'm giving you keys. All right, verse six. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall what? Right, that's absolutely wild. That could be worked on. That's an oxymoronic term. It's the metaphor of men and women not being able to be relieved from their torment. Okay, you can't just escape like through suicide. This is not what that's talking about. This is not what this, suicide doesn't solve the problem of being unsaved. Did that make some sense? It it doesn't solve that problem. It accelerates it. Verse seven. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold in their faces, and their faces were the faces of what? But if that's not wild, I I mean, if that's not one of those sci-fi movies, I don't know what is. If this is not a transgendered person, I don't know what that is. I'm laughing. Get a hold of it. Get a hold of it. Am I making some sense? I'm laughing, but I want you to get a hold of it because this is how God warns what happens when we intentionally violate the order of things. When we destroy the categories of things ontologically, God opens us up to a demonic world and the demonic world loves confusion. This is what you're dealing with. And we laugh about it, but the destruction that comes with a culture that has decided to engage in not only pharmaceutical strikes on human beings like scorpions, but the modification of body parts In this transgender chaos that we are now starting to emit. Did it come home? Your Bible speaks to it. Verse eight. And they had hair as the hair of women and their teeth was as the teeth of what? This is real wild because now we're dealing with the hybrid of anthropomorpho zoomorphisms. Now we got teeth like now, you know, this chick ain't trying to be cute. Right. She ain't trying to be cute. Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) I do not understand other than the fact that the neo-Marxist cultural deconstructionism that's taking place is intending to um, assault our intelligence by taking things that couldn't possibly win a beauty contest and make them win. And, and are doing it just to, just to disrupt your sense of decency, order, and coherence, and beauty. Did that make some sense? Okay, good. It's important because that's an enemy behind the scene doing that to you. Disrupting your sense of proportionality, of decency, coherency, and beauty. Right? All right, let me keep going. Verse 9. And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings were as the sounds of chariots of many horses running to what? Because these are symbolic metaphors of demonic armies that are taking on grotesque combined hybrid imagery of the rebellions of mankind and employing themselves as they as they would. Now, I could I could pause and put a parenthesis on this and talk about warfare going all the way back to the Babylonians, Medo-Persians, and the Roman Empire. This is a a Roman Empire context. The book of the apocalypse is written in the fourth beast rule of the Roman Empire. I just want you to know that now, just in case people want to argue eschatological paradigms. The Roman Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Babylonians engaged in all of this frolic of sex uh, changes and sex rearrangements and pedophilia and all kinds of perversions in conjunction with war, sadomasochism, okay? They did not care about order. They did not care about hierarchy. They did not care about structure because they were so bereft of God, they had no sense of decency whatsoever. So in a battle and war, you're gonna see the perversion of sexual violence going on at the same time. That's what's going on in your world right now. And blind Christians are not seeing the battle Is going on right now. We're not seeing it as a spiritual battle, but it is. Am I making some sense? We're not seeing it that way, but it is. Verse 10. And they had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails and their power was to hurt men. How long? As long as the flood of Noah's day, where Noah and his eight souls were sealed in the ark and everybody else had the reign of judgment coming down. on them. It's the idea of unescapable judgment. Only in this context, you didn't die. You just tormented. Verse 11. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek it's Apollyon. So you have both the Old Testament and the New Testament corresponding as a composite whole of God's judgment through his revelation. The Old Testament, New Testament, I already told you that. You cannot read the New Testament without any sense, without understanding it's filled with Old Testament references. So when we're talking about demons, we're not just talking about New Testament demons. We're talking about Old Testament demons. And this is what Jesus talked about. I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Verse 12, one voice passed. Behold, there comes two other woes here, hereafter. Let's keep moving. And the six angels sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, altar, which is before God. Where are we at now? Where are we at now? The temple. Back up. You are at The temple. So, what you were seeing for these four or five trumpet judgments is what proceeded out of heaven down to the earth or out of hell up from the pit, decreed by heaven, so that you and I were looking at the activity. Now we're being reminded oh, wait a minute, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all flesh keep silence before him. That's what you're being reminded. That God is on his throne exercising his sovereignty over humanity from his throne in his what? Temple. The altar is in the temple. The incense is in the temple. The temple is not on the earth. Where's the temple? Because uh, I, w- I want to make sure you keep that in mind. The temple is not on the earth. It's in heaven. All right. next verse saying to the sixth angel that had a trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates, verse 15. And the four angels were loose, which had been prepared for one hour, one day, one month and one year for to slay the third part of men. So it was a designated period of time for these angels to come out of the Euphrates River, emerging up out of the Euphrates River, like the emergence up out of the Nile River, out of the Euphrates River. We, we already know what this is all about. This is the boundary between the east and the west. And God's drying up the east and the west so that judgment comes over into an area where God's enemies will going to be, are going to be flooded by this host of four angel demons. Look at verse 16. I'm being uh, vague with the specifics on purpose. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. 200,000,000. In other words, again, this is kind of symbolic language for a multitude which no man could number. Okay. 200,000,000. Some would say that two hundred thousand thousand would be like 20 billion. Okay. And I heard the number of them. Verse 17. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them. So now we're dealing with horses. The horse is prepared for the day of what? Battle. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. So these angels are really a host of monstrosity of warriors that are riding horses. Look at it again. And they sat on, those that sat on them have breastplates of what? Fire and it's illuminated like it's just on fire, just just massively glowing, adjacent, a a brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of what? We just had saw that back earlier with with the women and the scorpions. And out of their mouths issued fire, smoke, and brimstone. What a a grotesque beast coming out of the the Euphrates, right? All of this is symbolism. All of this is symbolism. You guys keeping up with me? Don't over-literalize it. Realize it, but don't over-literalize it. Symbolism is often things seen that don't directly correspond with what really is behind them. The symbolism is for aesthetic effect. Symbolism is to make you feel something. Remember, you and I are not there. We're in a theater watching a drama of divine purpose that's impacting you at the psychological level on purpose. Did that make some sense? God's saying, watch my theater. That's a Greek term, okay? That's a Greek term for being able to fix your eyes and watch and observe every detail of the theatrics, okay? It is the, the arrow, the ability to see it, detail it, understand it, be impacted by it. You know it's not real, but it's impact. Is meant to create a paradigm shift in your thinking, okay? Here it is, verse 18. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouth. Let's keep going. For their power is in their mouth and in their what? Right, so you've got the front end of this beast speaking, power in their mouth, but the back end of their be striking power in their tail. That is a humanoid scorp- scorpion. Did that come home? That is a humanoid scorpion. Scorpions strike with their tail. This is Proverbs nine, Isaiah nine, fifteen. The ancient and the honorable. He is the head, and the false prophet that speaks lies. He is the tail. So this is government along with politics destroying humanity in a collaboration to lie to them did that come home uh pull up the text Isaiah chapter 9 15 just just in case just in case you don't know I just want you to get it the ancient and the honorable he's the head and the prophet that teaches lies he's the what and the dragon Revelation chapter 12 threw a third part of the stars with his what That's right, because the serpent and the scorpion and the snakes, they are all composites of the same kind of surreptitious beast. Uh, The oriental image of a surreptitious beast destroying men with their subtlety and their wiles, coming from their tails, going back to our text. All right, we're doing pretty good on time, even though I'm not at my seventh trumpet. Can we make our way back to our text? There it is. By these were the third parts of men killed. Is that the end of the chapter? Okay, keep going, please. There's something else to be said here. For their power was in their, uh, in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like on the serpents and had heads. And with them they do hurt. There it is. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. This is wild. Capture that. The impenitency of humanity after a long period of judgment warnings only hardened. They never soften. Did that come home? All right, so I'm setting you up for something. This is what I'm setting you up for. I'm setting you up for the reality that you will not see if we are moving towards a climactic close of God's judgment on the earth in some kind of unknown reset. You will not see massive peoples coming to Christ like Billy Graham evangelism meetings. It's not gonna happen. Did you hear what I just stated? Forget it. Not, the evangelism, evangelism meetings that you and I used to, you, a lot of you guys are way too young, but I, I was around in the days when that happened, where we were all excited about all kinds of people coming to Jesus, all around the world, all coming to Jesus. They came and they went. They came and they went. Because that was part of a major lying sign one, and wonder too. But what God says is in tribulations like these. These are designed to punish men after they have been warned for so long and they harden their hearts. This is not designed to save anybody. Did you hear what I just stated? People are to be saved by one mechanism. It's the preaching of the gospel. And where they reject the gospel, they're left to this. Did you guys hear what I just stated? Because you'll hear Christians say, oh, I hope if we have a nuclear war, I hope it drives people to Jesus. It won't. It won't drive people to Jesus. If you don't come to Jesus now, you're never going to come to Jesus. Right? Man, I'll get to my last thing. I'm going to come to Jesus. No, you're not. No one comes to Jesus unless the father draws them. Right. And by the time we get to major crazy in our world, God's giving people up. This is why he says, warn them now. This is why the church's job is to preach the gospel now. Right, that's what we're supposed to do. So notice what he says. That they sh- he says that the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor what. That describes the totality of our world system. That's where our world is. Our world is filled of material idolatry. That's where we are. Let me see. Is there another verse? Neither repented they of their murders. You see the word murder there. That's one. That's whole that category. Nor of their what? Their pharmaceutical destructions. Nor of their what? Fornications. Nor of their what? Right. And every all four of those could have the elliptical statement added. Their murder of men, their pharmaceutical destruction of men, their fornications with men and their thefts of men. See that term theft? That's really referring to slavery. Is it coming home? Yeah. That's slavery. Does that describe what's going on in our world today? Yeah. Yeah. To a T. That's what the apocalypse is. So, a, a bird's eye view, a heavenly view, gives you the world through God's eyes. That way, you don't have to trust CNN, MSNBC, or any other kinds of news agencies because God lets you know this is how you are to think about child sex slavery and trafficking. This is how you are to think about transgenderism and messing with our kids. This is how you are to think about fornication. This is how you to think about idolatry. This is how you are to think about murder because all of this is happening right now and it's happening exponentially, and it's only going to grow more if God doesn't intervene. Y'all keeping up with me? And the whole world's happy about it. They're just fine with everything just falling apart. Fine with it because they're deceived. Is that it to the text? All right, so go now to chapter 11. I want to walk you through 15 verses on the seven trumpet. Chapter 10 is a beautiful interlude like chapter 7 was. We might talk about this later, but I want to I want you to just see. I'm not going to even interpret it. I'm not going to interpret, interpret the seventh trumpet. I just want you to see what it is. By the way, the seventh trumpet that's going to be talked about in verse 14 and 15 of Revelation 11 is going to go all the way through Revelation chapter 20. So it's a lot of events under the seventh trumpet. A lot of events under the seventh trumpet. But I just want you to see a portion of what the seventh trumpet is going to do here. I'm at Revelation chapter 11, verse one, please. And there was given me, John's talking, a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. Do you see that? Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So I want you to get this. John is measuring the holy of holies. He's not measuring the temple proper. He's not measuring the court of the temple. In the Jewish temple, they had a major court where the women and the Gentiles could dwell in and the common men. But the Holy of Holies was only for the priest wherein the priests would do their sacerdotal services, and then you had the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the Shekinah glory abode, where God is supposed to abode, okay? John is marking off only the Holy of Holies. He's letting the rest of the temple be wide open. I just want you to get that. John now is occupying Ezekiel's role. Ezekiel hung out with the angel that measured everything in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, the walls, the temple, all of that, okay? So John is revisiting this, and if you knew your Old Testament Bible like Jews should know, they would know John is a Neo-Ezekian prophet, okay? Notice what it says in verse 2. I'm going to walk it through. Thank you for your patience. But the court which is without the temple leave out and do not measure it, because it's given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall be tread underfoot for how long? Three things now. Whatever is not measured is not protected. Whatever is not measured is not protected. What is not protected is coming under the judgment of the Gentiles. In the apocalypse, the Gentile nation ruling at that time was called who? The Roman Empire. The fourth beast. Now, we know this not by speculation, not because I'm some guy that just loves holding eschatological positions, but I'm an exegete of scripture. And the key to us knowing it's the Roman Empire, the fourth beast, is the timetable that's given to us in the verse. Notice what it says. And they shall tread underfoot the city for how many months? So how many days is that? 1,260 days. How do you know that, pastor? Because the next verse says it i read my Bible. What is 1,260 days? What is 42 months? It's half of seven years. Half of seven years. Three and a half years of what we call a prophetic calendar. This is why I've always argued with my premillennial dispensational brother. There are no seven-year periods in the book of Revelation. Did y'all get that? It's important to know. Now look at Daniel chapter 7, 25. Notice what it says in Daniel 7.25. In Daniel 7.25, it says that he shall speak great words against the most high God. We know who that is. Chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, getting ready to use this again. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High God. I should say he is. The idea is to, to rub and 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 abraze and, and, and tell the saints to just get so weary that they can't act. That's how the enemy works. He just wears you down. Wears you to the point where you are in a kind of psychological and emotional paralysis. That's called the lipsies. That's the pressure that comes down from the warfare. Y'all keeping up with me? Wears you down so that you can't do exploits, so that you don't have energy, so that you don't have momentum, so that you don't have efficacy. His goal is to wear you down. And the saints are being worn down. Right. That's his goal. He doesn't do it as an all and out tack. He just when you wake up in the morning, you just feel like you got weights on you. And after a while, you don't even want to go nowhere. Just wear you down. His goal is to wear you down unless you have somebody liberating you every day. Notice what he says. He shall speak great words against the Most High. wear out the saints of the Most High? And think to change times. Are times changing? And think to change laws. And they're changing. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and a what? One year, two years, and a half a year. How many years is that? Three and a half years. That's your, what we call, uh, prophetic formulaic timetables that says the same thing three different ways. 42 months. A times, a times, and a half a times, 1,260 days. Daniel will say this again in, in Daniel chapter 12, same thing. So how do we know this is the, the, the uh, Roman Empire? Go back to verse 24. Daniel 724. Well, you, you're at Daniel 710. There we go. And the ten horns. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings, and they shall arise. Let me see Daniel, do verse 23. I just want to get the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom. There it is. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. First kingdom, second kingdom, Medo-Persia. Third kingdom, Grecian Empire. Fourth kingdom, Roman Empire. The fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire in the days in which our master was born. He was un, uh, he was he was around when Augustus Caesar was ruling. He made his way all the way up to um, another Caesar that was after Augustus. He'll he'll pop back up in a moment. Then the apostles hung out all the way up to Nero. Uh, Caligula was around during the apostles time. This is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire encompasses the book of Revelation all the way up to Domitian, minimum up to Domitian and uh, obviously Vespasian and and Titus as well. This is the fourth kingdom. It's very important to know that because people are cajoling different timetables according to their eschatological schemes. And what we are understanding is that the Roman Empire was the era in which Christ made these prophecies that you and I are dealing with now. Very important. He shall devour the whole earth and tread it down and break it in pieces. Very horrible beast. All right, so that being the case, go back to Revelation chapter 11. Let me uh, permit me a few more minutes to walk through this so you can see it. You've heard this language. This is this is a short narrative. There's a lot to be said here, but I want you to see the optics because when we're done, we can talk. I think I'm going to have to do a second study on this to drill down at some points. I'll give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred three score days clothed in what? So remember what Jesus says out of the mouth of what? Two or three witnesses. I shall send you forth two by two. Tarry ye here until you be in due with what? Power from on high. So shall you be my what? In the original language, the word power is not there, so you can scratch that out. I will give unto them what is necessary for them to be my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for a thousand two hundred and three-score days. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the whole earth. This is powerful because what this is describing is how God views his witnesses. He views every believer who is a true witness as an olive tree. Because the olive tree is the covenant promise that God would take care of his people by the presence of the anointing, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which came through the olive oil that was poured into the menorah so that the menorah could give light to the world of who Messiah was. So every believer is this candlestick. You are the light of the world in the which the Holy Spirit is being poured into continually in order that you might continue to illuminate God's word. Did that make some sense? You and I will not be good witnesses or even effective witnesses without the third person. He has to help us tell the truth as it is in Christ. Here's the reason why. Look at verse five. And if any man hurt them, because you see what happens when folk tell the truth? You get hurt, don't you? Now, if any man hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. That's why you got to keep your mouth shut, saints, because you can hurt people with your mouth. Fire proceeds out of your mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will be hurt by them, he must in this manner be what? All right. So I'm going to lock in a little, little, little narrative. Your power is in the word of God. That's where your power is. It's not in your person. It's in the word of God. Also, it's not in your person to execute God's word in a way of wanting to harm anyone. Your job is to simply tell the truth. The truth will navigate healing and harm according to the sovereignty of God. Did that make some sense? Your job is not to hurt anyone with your words. Your job is to declare the truth. The truth will be negotiated by the sovereign Lord as a two-edged sword to heal and harm as God pleases. That's the nature of truth. That's the nature of truth. In other words, you and I don't want to use any other means to protect ourselves or defend ourselves, but the truth. Notice what it goes on to say. Verse six, these have power to shut heaven that it rained not in the days of their prophecy. Who is that? Elijah. Elijah represents the prophets. These also have power to turn the waters into blood and smite the earth with plagues as often as they will. Who is that? Moses. The law and the prophets, the totality of the Old Testament canon. Did y'all get that? This is not literally Moses. This is not literally Elijah. This is symbolism. Moses and Elijah don't come back from the dead and hang out in the earth in some tribulation period. Sorry. The message there is about the Bible. It's the same authority that Christ used. It's the same authority the apostles use. This is our authority. The law and the prophets. Y'all got that? This is our authority. It's important for you to know that we'll be able to argue that here in a moment. Look at verse six. Verse, uh, yeah, verse verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them. And what? John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus, Stephen, James, the brother of John, tried to get Peter, tried to get Paul. Throughout the whole of the early church, martyrs everywhere. Did y'all get that? simply telling the truth. Here we go. Verse eight. And their dead bodies shall be in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Where was our Lord crucified? Jerusalem. Sodom and Egypt. That's a code name for rebellious Jerusalem. Y'all got that? Totally apropos in the 21st century. Egyptology dominates the perverse thinking of all kinds of people in the world today. With this hybrid of gods. And the sodomite culture is now the prevailing culture in our society. And Israel was completely wrapped up in both of them and are today. And so it keeps going because those are coded terms that will show up in Revelation 18 and we won't have time. And they they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies for three and a half days and they shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. These here are the simplicity. This here is the coded language of numerical symbolism because you have three and a half years, right? The 1260 days, uh, uh, 42 months, right? Three and a half years is reduced now to three and a half days. That's a symbolic metaphor. Three and a half days, three and a half years. In other words, for three and a half years we're preaching, but for three and a half days we suffer death. Does that make sense? Right. The death period is short. The measure of preaching is as long as God is calling us to. That's why Paul said, My time is up. My, my, my departure is at hand. I've finished my course. I fought my faith. I fought the good fight of faith. I'm ready to now lay hold of my reward henceforth is laid up for me a crown. He knew his time was up. And it's true for every one of us too. When our time is up, our time is up. Verse 10, I'm sorry, stay at verse nine. Notice, and they open and they of the kindreds, people, kindreds, tongues, and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Why? Because they want to mock them. They want to torment them. They want to ridicule them. They want to celebrate their death. Sound like the world I live in. Sounds like what they're doing with technology today. Censoring. Ad hominem attacks, pejoratives. Making it look like those who are telling the truth are actually lying. As I told you, a false witness will be punished. But a true witness will continue to speak. So when true witnesses appear to be punished by the world, they're made to look like false witnesses. I'm helping some of y'all. That's a false image. The true witnesses are slaughtered by the rhetoric and techniques of the secular world system. So the secular world thinks that they're false. Did that make some sense? But we're to hold on because they're going to rise again from the dead like Jesus did after three days. Because you can't hold the truth down forever. Haven't we figured that out, saints? We're enjoying it now, aren't we? because it's emerging explicitly clear a lot of the stuff that went on over the last three years. But we are in for another major battle, and it's upon us even as we speak. Verse 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, make merry, shall send gifts one to another because the two prophets that tormented them that dwell on the earth. So the gospel torments people. I don't know why, but I guess it does. And after three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet. And great fear fell upon them which saw it. So you can actually take this and make application to this small victory time that we're engaging in right now, where a lot of the true witnesses of the truth of what went down were slaughtered and they're emerging, they're recovering, they're winning battles. We're winning them in the courts. We're winning them in the Senate. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? This is not a small thing. This is a really important thing to know. Certain victories are designed for a moral and spiritual fervor to rise up again. I would hope that it would turn into something on the part of human beings to realize we got a little window to stop this crazy madness if we rise up and fully live out our Christianity. Otherwise, we're going to sleep and another blue pill will be given to you. And the second one you will not wake up from. It's true. Now, this is the way the seventh trumpet begins to emerge. Notice what it says. Verse 12. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. So you see from heaven on the earth, the two witnesses serving God and then being killed and God allowing them to be misused and then raising them from the dead and now bringing them up to heaven, right? Right, we call that the final day of God's rapture for all of God's people. That's the sound you hear in 1 Thessalonians 4:17, right? The Lord shall descend with a shout and the voice of the archangel shall be heard and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we shall be taken up together to be with him in the air. You guys know that promise, right? That motif is important. It's called a triumphant motif. In the midst of the darkest time, even where the enemy uses his most severe tool, which is death, we overcome death. Because of him who's sitting at the right hand of God. Did that make some sense? Right. For the believer, the promise is always resurrection. For the believer, the promise is always resurrection. And only resurrection if we still got work to do on the earth. But if we don't have work to do on the earth, it's ascension. Christ paid for you and I to be with him in glory. Did that make some sense? All right, good. Verse 13, we're, we're winding down. In the same hour was there a great earthquake and a 10th part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000 and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to God. Now why? Because the two witnesses have been caught up. The earth now is rattling because God almost always rattles the earth when he's showing that he's in control even though the enemy is wreaking havoc. See, when the earth shakes, People don't go, oh, Satan. (laughs) They go, oh, God. Did that make some sense? All right, I needed to wake you up. We're almost done. Verse fourteen. I don't ever think about Satan when when God goes through ecological judgments. Like he gets so small in the equation, right? Like, dude, get out the way. I know who's doing this. I need to talk to him. (laughs) right. The second was has passed, behold, the third woe comes quickly. Verse 15. Here it is. Watch this. And the seventh angel sounded. The seventh angel is the seventh trump. Y'all got that? And there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is what marks the sounding of the seventh trumpet. I just want you to get that because it's going to come up in my preaching and teaching as things continue to happen. The, the announcement is that Go back to the 15th verse, please. And the announcement is that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign. How long? And how, how long? Now, is, are the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of our Christ? Are they? Yeah, you better figure that out. If Christ is not Lord now, he will never be Lord. Did you hear what I just stated? If he's not Lord now, he lied to us when he said all power and authority has been given unto me and heaven and earth. If he's not Lord now, the apostles what were they saying when they said God hath made him both Lord and Christ? Bow the knee to him. If he's not Lord, why did he send the disciples into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world? How is it that Christ is not Lord when we preach the gospel and people become saved? You can't be saved if he's not Lord. If Christ did not die and rose again, you are still in your sins. Am I making some sense? This is why the world has been exposed to the gospel as it has for 2000 years, because Christ is Lord. Just want you to keep that in your mind. Notice what it goes on to say. Verse 16. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on on their seats, fell on their faces and did what? Right. That's what we do in our heart. We worship the king of glory. He's worthy of it. Verse 17. Saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because you have taken to you this great power and you have reigned. Keep going, because this is the content of the praise. Keep going. And the nations were what? Now, this is 2,000 years ago, John wrote. They're angrier now. They're angrier now. And the nations are angry and your wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should give reward unto your servants, the prophets and to the saints and to them that fear your name, small and great. And you should destroy them that are doing what? Now, look at what God's going to do. Destroy them that destroy the earth. Do you see it? He's going to destroy them that destroy their so Christian. You and I don't get to think that God is indifferent about what the wicked are doing to the earth. We don't get to do that because this is God's world. This is God's water. It's God's air. Those are God's trees. Those are God's animals. You don't get to chop them up in the name of, you know, technology, scientific technology, and turn them into this demonic monstrosity. God will come after you, which he's already doing which he's already doing. This also should inform your politics, children of God. Right. You should never be a pure capitalist. You don't destroy the earth to make money. You do that, then money is your God. Did that make some sense, child of God? All right. See, so we, we need to know that Jesus is Lord of heaven and, and earth. And when that's true, then that's going to inform our politics and it's going to help us influence policy in this world when we do what we're called to do in a free country by which we can speak, talk, assemble, bear arms and promote truth and impact our society like we should do in a free sovereign nation. Am I making some sense? Right. Because I do believe that if God wanted to, he could give us another millennium and we could clean up all this crap. I do believe that if God wanted to give us another millennium, I don't know how long we're going to be here, but he could grant us the ability to clean up this crap. Do y'all believe that? I can tell you right now, because I know brilliant scientists who are ready to get to work. And this can turn around in just a few years. And it can be better than it was when we started this experiment called America. See, but the people of God got to know that there's hope in these areas and they got to know that they got to actually do exploits. The people that do know their God must do exploits. The goal of politics is to keep you paralyzed at the ballot box. That's the wicked. That's his goal. The wicked don't want to believe that you have any authority, that you don't have any influence whatsoever. The wicked wants you to be just the kind of religious person that runs off at the mouth and never contributes to the turning around of the society. Now, you know what I'm saying is the truth. I got you mad on purpose because we're going to do Q&A for 15, 20 minutes, and I'm running you out of here. All right, let's talk. Tell me what you got out of this. Anybody? I will constrain your, your words for a few minutes so we aren't hanging out too long. Maybe you guys were overwhelmed, and I'm just going to shut it down and send you home. Marlis, you'll be third to last. Anybody on this side? Anybody got any observations? Anybody took notes? I need one, then I need two, then I'll do Marlis. If I don't get two, then I'm shutting down. Okay. All right, that's good. I can Quart- go? Yes, you can. Oh. You asked us
1: earlier to, um, to tell you what stood out to us when you read about the bitterness that stood out to me about bitter people. I've had to deal with bitterness in my own life but I also feel like it is something that um, I don't think that we're really taking very seriously and it said the verse that came to my mind also was see to it that nobody develops a bitter root and defiles many people and um, I'm hoping that you know Uh, we'll be able to better support one another through situations that would lead us bitter because it can be very devastating um, to not be brought through that in the the right way.
0: That's all I want to say. I agree. I agree. We we do need to be careful not to become bitter. That's the problem. That's what happened to um, Esau. He became bitter. Anybody's hand is starting to rise up? There we go.
2: So I had um, a great question. So in the beginning you were talking about when we're sitting at the right hand of Jesus and things are hurting him, they should hurt us. So if in your heart these things hurt you and then you do want to do something about it, like in the word, We're supposed to persevere and ask for guidance and wisdom and then have faith and trust that the Lord will meet us in the moments because he's a good God. And um, when we feel those very passionate hurtings and, and decide to do something about it, we're to be grateful that we can feel God flowing through us. But like you said, heaven, one day, half hour, his timing is, you know, it might not line up with what we think our timing is, but we should stay on course.
0: Agreed. Another way of understanding hurt, if you struggle with the anthropomorphism, it's actually an anthropopathism with God, um, is being grieved. So grieving is hurting. Did y'all get that? Grieving is hurting. God doesn't hurt. He's not not a man like us in that regard, but he does grieve. And he does use the the illustration of sorrow. And Christ is a God-man in heaven. So he was acquainted with sorrows and with griefs. And we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So... These are indicators of God's excellence being disrupted by human behavior. And if you can imagine the excellence of God in his uh, interest in us at the anthropomorphic level, God delights in us. God rejoices in us. God is displeased with us. God um, can be angry with us. And all of these are anthropomorphical terms at the the pathos level. You guys know that. And you and I have those qualities in us as well. What God would also warn that you and I don't do is harden our hearts. Because when you harden your heart, you disassociate yourself with the impactful elements of atrocities. And it's easy to withdraw from them and not want to have anything to do with it. So once we start hardening our hearts, now we're on the path to sociopathic behavior because that's sociopathy. Okay, you you need to know that. So um, the reason he gives you a new heart wherein he writes his laws on your hearts and your minds is so you can you can struggle with the uh, dysfunctional nature of humanity. That's what Moses is dealing with. I'm getting ready to deal with him one more time because he's struggling with what he sees. And you and I should, too. And by the way, no one does anything great from the Lord who is not first deeply hurt. No one does. No one does. The reason why is to actually serve God requires you being selfless. To become selfless requires you to first take on as a kind of interventionist and advocate the burdens of others. This is why our society right now is in danger of God's wrath because of abortion. And we're in danger of God's wrath because of child sex um, slavery. And we're in danger of God's wrath because of a pornographic lifestyle that completely destroys the Imago day. All of this is part of the demonology that's dominating our world. And Christians are in many ways just ho-hum about it. Our whole humness is because the enemy has distracted us in other directions for which being distracted in those other directions, we are comfortable with not hearing the atrocities over there. But what the Bible says is if you hear about the atrocity and don't respond to it, you won't be able to say to the angel on that day, I didn't know. Proverbs lays it out very clear. If in the day that you discover the vulnerable being vulnerable being hurt and you don't cry out about it and do something about it you won't be able to say to god i didn't know that we're going to all be guilty of that if we're not doing something now to mitigate that who has the mic okay aj hey
3: hey pastor i was just curious if um Uh, you had mentioned like if the Lord gives us more time and we start to see things sort of turning. Don't drop
0: the mic because we need to hear you. Yeah, if if the
3: Lord gives us more time and we start to see things turning for the, um, I guess for the better, would that somehow like imply or indicate that we're not in the seventh trumpet? No,
0: not at all. We're way in the seventh trumpet. So remember what I told you, I gave you a key. I stopped it here because I just need to stop it. I told you the seventh trumpet encompasses, and I want to answer your question more fully. The seventh trumpet encompasses chapter 11 all the way up to chapter 19. Okay, so it's the seventh trumpet. It's the last one. That trumpet is sounding long. That trumpet is sounding long. And there's a lot of events. For those of you who have been tracking with PJ for many years in the apocalypse, you know, from chapter 11, we got all kinds of things. Crazy chapter 12, the ascension of the child to the throne of God, the falling of Satan, the woman being pursued and ran into the wilderness. She given two wings of a great eagle. Then beast one rises up. Beast two rises up. The mark of the beast is setting square in chapter 13, chapter Uh, 14 the triumph of the elect that don't buy into the mark of the beast chapter 15 here comes the vile judgments remember the vile judgments cannot be released without the seventh trumpet the seventh trumpet is what releases the vile judgments that's why i'm saying we're in the seventh trumpet because i believe we're near the vile judgments being released in the vile judgments we would even just to deal with chapter 15 through 18 and the vile judgments would be an hour and a half Itself because it actually gets more into detail than we dealt with when we were dealing with the first six trumpet judgments. And they overlap and they expand each other and they're more intensified and more particular and more grotesque and more absolute in the vile judgments. And all of these are seals, trumpets and bold judgments are artifacts of the temple. But the temple is not the temple on the earth. It's the temple in heaven. In the apocalypse, there is no earthly temple. It's only a heavenly temple. In the apocalypse, there is no earthly Jews. They're only heavenly Jews. In the apocalypse, there's no earthly church, only a heavenly church. Because what you're dealing with in chapter four to chapter 22 is a bird's eye view. Do you understand that? And heaven is a temple. And so what's going on on the earth are the movements of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile and Jesus doing the work that God is calling them to do. But there is no fixed national church, no fixed national temple, no fixed national ethnic group. It's all all only one in Christ. That's what you get from chapter four to chapter twenty two. Just want you to know that you won't ever find any state church, any state denomination. You won't find national Israel there. The language that you see in the apocalypse from chapter five following is coded language that resolves itself in chapter 22 with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, having the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes on its foundation walls and on his foundation gates. Does that make some sense? They are up in heaven. See, this is what, that's why I'm saying you got to listen to Paul. Everything starts in heaven for us. Heaven is where we dwell. And the doors of heaven are open. There was one last verse. They shut it down really quickly, but there was one last verse you can read it in Revelation and I should have marked that Revelation, the last verse, because this is really an important text. Revelation chapter 11. I just want you to see it. We'll do one more question and close. But what I am completely um, convinced of is that what the apocalypse is, is a bird's eye view of things from God's vantage point. And the seven trumpet says something extremely important in chapter 11, verse 19. Are we there? And the temple of God was opened where? That's right. It's not on the earth. Now watch the language. Listen carefully to the language. The temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Now we know the ark of the testament is the testimony of God. The law. Aaron's rod that budded. And the manna. And all of those are testimonies of the person and work and offices of Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the manna that comes down from heaven. This is not Old Testament. This is New Testament. But the Old Testament language is used as a model for us. Am I making sense? So when heaven opens up and we see the temple, what we see is the consummation of all the law and the prophets in the person of Jesus. But that ark is also the throne of God. That's where God sits on his throne to execute judgment. That's why you're going to read what it says. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great what? The next time you read about the temple is in chapter 15, where the bold judgments get poured out. Because seven angels with the seven last plagues are coming out of that temple to execute final wrath on humanity because of its rebellion. Did y'all get that? Very important to know. So for the people of God, as the minor prophet Habakkuk puts it, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. The holy temple is fixed in heaven. That's a metaphor of heavenly things, of the sovereign monarch. Our God is a monarch. He's a theomonarch. An anthropotheomonarch is Jesus. And he rules over this world. This helps you and I, even though things are shaking, and they are, it help us, helps us understand that God is in control. You need to have this vision. You you gotta be able to keep that vision that God is in control. And when he says the temple is open, that means he's acting from heaven in the affairs of men. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that's why when Jesus went to the cross, you know, Pilate was acting a fool, like he was some major something. And he said, Don't you know if I wanted to, I could call down from heaven. Six legions of angels and wiped this place. See, Jesus already knew what was going on up in heaven. You, so Jesus has a bird's eye view. Yeah. We don't have a bird's eye view. We get trapped down here. Also, what I was saying, AJ, is because all my Christian life, I've saw, saw how the church strives to get, uh, get people to come to their church because they know the day and the hour that Jesus is coming. Right. Noah didn't know. I don't know. And all of the wicked men that tried to set dates didn't know. And wicked women, because there was a few of them too. We believe in total depravity, the depravity of men and women, okay? Um, and, And the key, the point here is that heaven can decree what it wants. And if it wants to give a state of judgment, On this earth because his people respond to him appropriately he can bring a stay of judgment did y'all get that of course read your Bible God's not bound by his own timetable you and I are bound by God's timetable but God's not bound by his own timetable we could see things stretched out and we may not know why they stretch out but they could and if they do stretch out it's for God's glory And humanity's good. I want to wrap this up. I want to wrap that proposition around. And I'm glad you asked it, AJ, because way too many times. And I've seen the church do this for decades. Speak on an academic level about the uh, sovereign movements of God. And that's irreverent. It's irreverent. We need to understand how much we don't know about what God does in his intervention of things going on in our life. I mean, he, he told Hezekiah, Hezekiah, get your house in order. You're out of here. He- Hezekiah cried out to God and God gave him 15 more years. Right. God knew that Hezekiah would cry out and God knew that he was going to give him 15 more years. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I I don't know how many saints I could call your attention to who have been on death door. Who called out to God. And God gave them a duration of life. I remember my friend Don Fortner. Some of y'all remember Don. One of the greatest gospel preachers I ever met in my life. He was sick unto death in his 30s. He's laying on his deathbed. And he said, to God if you get if you get me off my deathbed I won't do anything but preach your gospel I saw that he died in the 60s I saw the indefatigable nature of Don Fortner in preaching everywhere on the planet anybody opened up any door for him to preach and no one would know why he did it You could you could attribute all kind of ill notions to it. Just want to be known, just want to be heard, just want to be popular, want to make a name for himself. No, God extended his life. And he says, I promise you, whatever doors open, I'll preach. If it's just 10 people there, five people there, I'll preach. See what I'm saying, saints? God kept Don alive for me. He sure did. He kept down a for me. So you need, you and I need to understand how God negotiates with his people. He can, he can keep it extended just for you. See what I'm getting at? So, so like if God extends his stay, there are all kinds of interventions that have to occur. Something's going to happen that will require you or require your kids, AJ. And you go, oh, no wonder God let us live another 40 years. He gave my kids certain gifts of which only they could execute to get something done. That's how God works. That's how he works. And so you and I need to know that we should not be like like Jeremiah said. I did not long for the woeful day. You know you're sociopathic when you want this world to end right now. Lord, bring judgment right now. Just kill up everything. You fool utter fool right you utter selfish narcissistic fool right we don't long for the woeful day we want the wicked to be removed so the righteous can be established so truth can bear fruit in the earth but we're not trying to expedite anybody's going to hell any sooner than god wants them to go that's nothing but arrogance. See, this is what Moses is trying to overcome. This is what I'm going to help you on Sunday. Because Moses was about to be in big trouble, huge trouble, had his request been granted. Who has a mic? No, nope, no, no, no. Hold on. Who has a mic? Does anybody else have a mic? Bo, go on. Go on a uh,
3: uh, Just for a stir. I was um, concerning uh, the third seal, come and see. There's interesting concerning the balances of uh, come and see, and you know, uh, I'm sure you know, Second uh, Kings seven, where it, it speaks of a very similar. You know, when uh, the famine was stopped yeah. by Elisha, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Elisha. Yeah, and then um, the the language is, and I'll just read the verse real quick. Uh, it's Second um, Kings seven. I had it. Yeah, verse thirteen. And one of his servants answered and said let us take I pray thee five of the horses that remain which are left in the city behold they are as all of the multitude of Israel that are left in it and behold I say they are even as all of the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed and let us send and see and so I find that similar language and um So, you know,
0: speaking of inflation It's speaking of the obtuse costs. I mean, just those donkeys were worth something at that point. Right. All of Israel.
3: Right. And so there was a replenishing. And so God was gracious. Yeah. And then here's another one. Um, Rehoboam's reign concerning the scorpions. Yes. Oh, Uh,
0: yeah. We could have went into it. Go on. Go on. And then just
3: just to mark, you know, because, you know, he was moved to to, uh, take the advice of his peers of his generation. That, you know, my father chastised you with whips, but I shall chastise you with scorpions. The point that I would like to make is when Jesus Christ cleaned the temple, he didn't clean it with scorpions, he cleaned it with whips. And so, but Israel didn't hearken. And so, is it now coming the scorpions?
0: 100%. Let me make the application. I mean, you could. But what he said in, in Luke chapter 10, around verse 11 I give you power over all the enemy, over serpents and over scorpions, right? And over all the power of the enemy, which means the enemy is bringing scorpions to bring judgment. Those scorpions came in AD 70 with the Roman Empire when they destroyed Israel. But God's people have been promised to have power over those scorpions. No deadly thing will hurt those who trust Christ. Right. So we could easily have gone deep into that. Thank you for that little little nugget, Bo. Um, it's, we ought to be hungry for God's promises because um, his promises show up at times when we need them, not necessarily when we want them. Um, all right. We're going to have a, like I said, we're going to have a new members class to tomorrow. Uh, OK, Marlis, what are you going to say? Nope, it ain't going to be quick. You're, you're never quick. Well, just say it from right where you are. What my mic? She, did you hear her? Yeah. Her yeah. mic. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Saint, should I grant her the mic? Yeah. 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 yeah after reading the Revelation, y'all going to be as nice as y'all can be. Thank you, people,
1: for your support. I really appreciate it. I wanted to say I felt incomplete because I, I really hope I did not come across as being um, what's the word, glib about bitterness. It's very, very um, serious. And I think I've learned some things, and um, I would just like to say if anybody would like to ask me about what I've learned about bitterness, I would be happy to, to share. I think one of the biggest problems is we don't have a proper amount of empathy for each other in our bitterness, my experience was that I got condemned a lot for the bitterness but people didn't realize that when someone's in bitterness they're actually um, trapped by their flesh and the devil and they need treatment rather than um, being um, criticized or further judged and I I discovered the power of empathy um, to help heal bitterness and so if anyone wants to know some of my experiences I would be happy to to share to share them all right I'd like to ask you I'd like to ask you what do you think no 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 no,
0: no. No, uh, we're done no no questions no we're done see how you cheat Get take that mic from her um thank you Marlis. of course um, bitterness is something that is part of our fallen nature. I'm not overgeneralizing it. I'll close here. Anyone can become bitter when the pressure is on you hard enough and um, you don't have a way out of that pressure. It can make you bitter. But you can also, if you are devious enough, you can call it bitterness. And it can be something else. So we we got a lot of rescue going on with therapy, which is okay. But you have to watch out for the narcissist. Everybody got that going on, too. Am I making some sense? So I just talk it through a little bit. The reason why they want to take our little boys and girls and swap their body parts is because they feel like every little problem that goes on is rooted in victimization. Right. These are misdiagnoses because we're not willing to be honest about grounds and causes of all sorts of things. And we're thinking we can save humanity through pharmaceuticals. So if we call everything something that is an emotional expression. Then, of course, we're not going to deal with it from a moral and ethical standpoint. Does that make some sense? Now, salvation is a drug. Or an aesthetic modification of our body parts. Rather than a moral dilemma. That is rooted in behavior that is really a matter of pride and anger towards God. You guys know that's true. Somehow we got to build that bridge between um, humanity's real need for God. And some of the secondary characteristics that we know are true. But I've just watched the psychological association usurp divine rights and act like a savior. And it's just made society even more sick. You guys know what I'm saying. A lot of times you can find yourself spiraling down in massive. Uh, massive amounts of uh, people paying attention to you. Because people will go down into the pit with you deep enough for both. You all to be miserable. Misery loves company. A lot of times it's the miserable people coming to people that are miserable so they can join each other's misery. I'm telling the truth. So we got to be careful about diagnosing and misdiagnosing for the purpose of just getting attention to being kind, however, is, is a wise thing as you guys might know, but you You always want to mix that kindness with the prudence of discernment. There's a bunch of lying going on today with people. All right, we're going to close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for everyone that came out. Thank you for uh, us having a kind of a beeline through the apocalypse again. It was so important. Um, Remind us that we have the privilege of seeing things through your eyes. And that when things shake up, help us to go, Lord, how do you see that? So we can see it your way and therefore yield the right moral, ethical and emotional response and remain faithful witnesses. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies, um, protect us between now and tomorrow, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.